Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. On today's episode, I want to share some thoughts regarding something that has long been a national conversation, mass shootings. Now, I imagine I don't have to tell you that just a week ago in Boulder, Colorado, 10 people were murdered when a gunman opened fire at a grocery store. And that came on the heels of eight people murdered in the Atlanta area at three different massage spas. Now, it's, it's been some time since we've witnessed atrocities at this scale. But when these two unspeakable events occurred, as citizens of the United States, we were like snapped back into something or, or thrown forward into something. But whatever we were cast quickly into... It's familiar territory for us because we have seen this dozens of times in the last several years in our country. And one of the things that's fascinating, um, that's not a great word to use. It's not fa- One of the things that's troubling, let me say it that way. One of the things that's troubling is how quickly we move on from these horrific events. 18 people were murdered. 18 And their lives were cut short by bullets tearing through their bodies in two shootings less than a week apart. A few minutes before I started recording this podcast, I'm sitting here in my office in downtown Denver, and when I look out my window, I look at a parking lot, and then then there's a street, and then there's another church building, and it's the Catholic Cathedral downtown. And the bells on that cathedral rang for 15 minutes And I waited to hit record because at that cathedral, they just concluded the funeral for Officer Eric Talley, who was the police officer who was gunned down in the parking lot in Boulder. Eighteen people were gunned down. There was 18 of those funerals. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, and yet the news cycle, like like we've already moved on. I mean, sure, like a week ago, it was like the American public couldn't get enough of it, but, but today, well, we, we've collectively moved on for the, for the most part. And maybe it's because these stories, you know, they've just moved down the list, you know, of the stories that our media feeds us. You know, just a few weeks ago, the only thing seen people like could talk about, other, of course, than COVID, which is like nonstop um, oh, and Donald Trump, by the way, we couldn't get enough of him, but now he's off Twitter. Like, <laughs> you can almost hear the panic in the CNN newsroom. Like, well, what do we talk about? Like, is there, is there any chance he's going to come back? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, but anyway, besides COVID and Donald Trump, uh, a few weeks ago, the, the, one of the most central stories in the United States was about the many accusations of sexual misconduct against Governor Cuomo in New York. And there were calls for his resignation from both sides of the aisle. And it was the top of many news feeds for a lot, a lot of time. And then the shooting in Atlanta happened. And this led to coverage of both the shooter, but also then coverage of the racist acts and the surge of violence against the Asian American community that has occurred in the last year. And it was everywhere. Then there's the shooting in Boulder. And the conversation like pivoted now to gun control. And there was a few articles about mental health in there. And this was the central story for a while. But the shooting in Boulder was quickly replaced by a story about 
a massive cargo ship getting stuck in the Suez Canal. Seriously, this is what's capturing people's attention. And of course, there were stories about maritime laws and trading routes and the importance of shipping for the global economy. Like now, just this morning, the ship got unstuck. And so like, my goodness, well, what are we going to talk about now? It's like we have to wait around for the media to tell us what we should be talking about. Is Trump, is Trump back on Twitter? He's not like, oh, damn it. Like, what are, what are we going to do? And every time there is a shift in the media's stories, like so many people follow right along. Why? Well, it, it's probably because, or apparently because, the media said to. Like the media said, well, you need to pay attention to this. And we do. And it's what we always do. And it's a great arrangement. I mean, they need the clicks on their websites and their news apps to pay the bills, and we're quick to respond to whatever the story of the moment is. And you see this, an example of this on social media. Like the number of people who I saw post something like, I stand with the AAPI community after the Atlanta shootings. It was legion. It was everywhere. Now, let me be really clear and say, this is fantastic. We should stand alongside any group of people who are marginalized in any way. But what I, what I really want to ask people who posted those things on social media is, what steps have you taken to actively stand alongside the AAPI community since you posted that two weeks ago? Like, what, what have you even done to learn about the history of Asian Americans in the United States since you posted that two weeks ago? And, and it was the same thing and, and often the same people after the Boulder shooting. I mean, people immediately posting their outrage over our lax gun laws. Keep in mind, most had said nothing publicly since the last mass, sh mass shooting, and I'm willing to bet fewer have taken any real steps that could lead to needed change. I mean, it's all fluff, and it really holds very little weight. And as I sat here in this office and I heard those bells ringing, I thought to myself, my goodness, what are we doing like, we follow along the talking points offered to us by Anderson Cooper or Tucker Carlson or any of the talking heads between those two viewpoints. And in all of this critique that I've offered thus far, and yes, it is a criticism and it is a critique, in all of this that I've offered, I wonder, can we have a broader conversation other than what our media is telling us to pay attention to? Can we pay attention to one thing long enough to actually possibly maybe bring some real and substantive change? Because this keeps happening and nothing changes. It's, it's actually the definition of insanity. Doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. And so today, I, I want to take a step back and consider some realities that are, that are right in front of us every day. Because what these tragedies do is they give us the ability to see things as they are, even if only for a moment. And these shootings, these are not aberrations in our culture. They are a symptom of something deeper. These last two shootings and the many before that have the power to destroy any and all illusions 
that we have about the way things are, or at least the way things we want things to be. And, and this, this is actually disillusionment, and, and it's often framed negatively. And so we hear about another shooting, and we recognize that things are not changing, and we recognize the gun laws haven't evolved or grown, and so we feel disillusioned. But what if that's not negative? Like, what if we are, as the word disillusioned suggests, being stripped of our illusions? Like, what if we are staring reality, no matter how harsh, right in the face? My spiritual director, when talking about being disillusioned, says, congratulations and condolences, because now you can see that much better. Congratulations. You've lost an illusion. You can see things. Condolences. It's going to be really difficult when you look and really actually see. But what this disillusionment has revealed through another series of mass shootings, what it's revealed is that our hate and our violence and our vicious words that are so commonplace in this country of ours that those things are more infectious and contagious than we could ever imagine. And what's even maybe more sobering is that we live in a country that doesn't really seem to see this kind of violence and this kind of hate as a disease or a sickness at all. Now, it's not like a brilliant and overwhelming observation to say there's something terribly wrong in our society. And that mass shootings point to that. Like we are far and away the world leader when it comes to this horrible reality of having the most mass shootings. Beyond that, our gun violence problem is just off the charts. But collectively, we don't really seem to be doing much to address it. And I get it. It's really easy to crap on the politicians. It really, really is. But collectively, together, you and me and everyone else, we're really not giving it the old college try. I mean, sure, the religious, you know, they can offer their superficial sentiments. Um, politicians can offer their thoughts and prayers. People can rage on Instagram about guns. Others say we need more guns to protect us from the people with guns. But like, what else like, can we really begin pointing to and saying, yes, there is a hard-headed, hard-nosed collective effort to bring about change? What else? And if the answer from any of us is nothing else, well, then maybe we should at least recognize that we're all contributing then to our national sickness. And by the way, when I say national sickness, I'm not talking about guns. I'm, I'm talking about our acceptance, and not just our acceptance, but our embrace and our celebration of violence. Like We are a blood-soaked country, and we revel in it. And this is true from the personal level to the national and collective level, too. I mean, just take a casual look around. Social media. Next one, right? I mean, do I have to say anything more? Social media. We all know exactly what I'm talking about. And it reflects our belief that we somehow believe that if like someone or a group of people opposes us in our ideas that the world would just be magically better if they were gone. And this is on all sides of things, by the way. 
Toni Morrison once reflected that this is not a new concept, and in fact, she studied and said that every culture and religion has held to this idea that for them, heaven was us without them forever. Heaven, the ideal utopian vision, was us, people who look, think, talk, act like us, without them, people that are none of those things, forever. And of course, hell is like a really nice add-on as the place for them, quote-unquote, to spend forever. And how will we go about getting rid of them? Well, violence. And that's either through word or deed. So you can like off someone if you need to physically, or nowadays you just get online and absolutely destroy them and cancel them. And by the way, it's interesting. I'm seeing people get upset that people are criticizing cancel culture. (laughs) Cancel culture is the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate criticism and hate-filled thing. And when someone's like, hey, that might not be the best idea, people are losing their minds over it. But I digress. But we, we just, we try to get rid of people. And it, there's like a, a seek and destroy and burn to ashes mentality in the hearts of so many of us. And it affects all of us, whether you participate in it or not. It affects all of us in one way or another. And, and this, by the way, is one form, one way in which we subscribe to the myth of redemptive violence. That's the age-old lie that violence will bring about peace. Destroy the bad guys, and things will somehow get better. If this were true, I mean, one would have to believe that with all the wars and deaths and murders and bombs and guns and bullets and fights that humanity has engaged in over thousands of years, that right now we would be experiencing a time of unbridled prosperity and peace. The problem of violence is not going to be solved by more violence of any kind. And maybe a first step is just to admit we've refused to recognize that violence cannot bring peace and that violence only gives birth to more violence within us and in our world. And maybe it would be helpful to look at the larger picture of how we've made violence the norm and how we, in some ways, like we endorse and encourage it. I mean, think about the way Kids are growing up in our world. And, like, I grew up like this, too. I mean, from a very early age, kids are shooting other people in their video games, killing as entertainment. Now, you may hear this and roll your eyes and be like, no, like, hang on a second. I'm not saying if a kid plays Call of Duty on Xbox, they're going to become the next mass shooter. What I am pointing out is that killing and violence is normalized at a very early age for our kids. What I, and it's not just video games, by the way, and it's not just kids. There is so much violence in our television shows and in our movies, and people seem to be okay with it. Like, I grew up in a really, really strict environment. I've talked about that in other places. And one of the things that was always like, um, there was always rules around were movies, and you can't watch me. Oh, they swear too much. Oh, there's too much sex. Oh, but you know what was never called out? <laughs> Violence. I remember as like eight year old, I think I was watching Raiders of the Lost Ark. And at one point, my brother's teenage friend said, I've been keeping count and Indiana's killed like 37 people or something like that. And everyone laughed. And my parents were in the room. Now, I couldn't watch a movie where they dropped an F-bomb 
But hey, if India is killing 37 Nazis, we're okay with it. This is how normalized it's become. And Hollywood, like they always, their version of justice just perpetuates this. It's always the murder of the bad guy at the end, which is the most uncreative and lame thing ever. Kill the bad guy and everything's going to be better. Like this is the best we can do. What about the way that we celebrate war and militarism at sporting events? <laughs> like, let's go play baseball, but before we do, let's fly weapons of mass destruction over the stadium while everyone cheers. What, what do we think that is? It's war and militarism. It's, it's, it's machinery designed for death. And we're cheering. I once heard Richard Rohr say that the celebration and sanctification of violence is demonic. Demonic. And those are strong words, but, but maybe they're the kind of words we need to wake us up from our shoulder-shrugging acceptance of violence in ourselves and in our world. Now, of course, I mean, none of this should surprise us. I mean, this is, consider the way our country was founded and the way it was built. I mean, its start was a bloody revolution against an overbearing empire. Now, for my British friends, they would say, they would call it the rebellion, not the revolution. But it began with violence. It began with a war. And then this was followed by the systematic killing of the people who already lived here. The genocide of indigenous people. And the only expense to get their land was our bullets and their blood. And think about how that has long been portrayed in American media. The indigenous people were the bad people wanting to, be, to do harm to the cowboys and their families and the settlers. So, of course, our violent acts were protecting them and serving the ultimate good. No. But, but what have we done? We've extolled it. We've made excuses for it. We've sanctified it. Our national economy expanded off the backs of slaves. People kidnapped and sent across the million pa middle passage in which millions of people died and were thrown overboard like cargo. And these people were then forced into servitude and brutalized by landowners. And this is a reality that was explained away by preachers when, who first were in this country, using God's word to show it. And again, it served the greater good, violence being sanctified. I mean, as a nation, the, the chief lie is that violence is okay as long as there's some sort of good that results. Uh, and this is preached in pulpits that also sing about Jesus. And we go along with it. Now, maybe not explicitly, but our steady diet of violence lends tacit approval to the violent culture of the United States. I mean, forget about in God we trust. Our country's motto should be in guns, in bombs, and violence we trust. And I say this because we conclude that the one with the most bullets and bombs should get their way. I mean, this is the way that we operate. And so we as a country spend mountains of money making more weapons, more than the next several nations combined. We're the world's leading arms dealer, selling weapons to other countries, proliferating violence around the planet. And at the same time, we fancy ourselves the global police force. I mean, our collective arrogance and hubris regarding the extent of our violence, it's like it doesn't have any boundaries. And this is evidenced by the fact that as a nation, only relatively recently 
have we apologized about the insidiousness of slavery, and we've recently sort of confessed to the mass genocide perpetuated against the indigenous tribes uh, for the in the atrocities that we committed against them. It is a it is a rare thing for the United States to repent for the violence our country has been responsible for in our own land and around the world. We don't even know what the meaning of repent is, if we're honest, as a culture and a country. And by the way, this is not out there in the world. I'm not criticizing some big behemoth or some faceless thing or a culture. Like this is in the hearts of those who faithfully attend church each week and call Jesus their Lord and Savior. Like we claim in the church to worship Jesus, a king who, when interrogated by Pontius Pilate, said, My kingdom is not like the kingdoms of the world. If it were, my servants would take up arms, fight, and use violence to prevent my arrest. As it is, my kingdom's not like that. That's my paraphrase. But it often seems that Christians in America, like, we don't have time for a God of peace. Instead, we worship a God of war. It's the mighty Roman God, Mars, the God of war in whom we've placed our faith, not the poor Mediterranean Jewish peasant named Jesus, the humble son of God who was a peacemaker. And by the way, I'm not just talking about the people that you don't go to church with. I'm talking about people who, go to you, who you go to church with and maybe even you. Martin Luther King wrote about this. Uh, after the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing and the assassination of President John F. Kennedy uh, in the death of illusions. And he writes these words. Our late president was assassinated by a morally inclement climate. It is a climate filled with heavy torrents of false accusation, jostling winds of hatred and raging storms of violence. It is a climate where men cannot disagree without being disagreeable and where they express dissent through violence and murder. It is the same climate that murdered Medgar Evers in Mississippi and six innocent children in Birmingham, Alabama. So in a sense, we are all participants in that horrible act that tarnished the image of our nation. By our silence, by our willingness to compromise principle, by our constant attempt to cure the cancer of racial injustice with the Vaseline of gradualism, by our readiness to allow arms to be purchased at will and fired at whim, by allowing our movie and television screens to teach our children that the hero is one who masters the art of shooting and the technique of killing, by allowing all these developments, we have created an atmosphere in which violence and hatred have become popular pastimes. This virus of hate that has seeped into the veins of our nation, if unchecked, will lead inevitably to our moral and spiritual doom. How in the world have we gotten so lost? <laughs> I've long said that one thing that seems to be true is that we worship at the altar of empire. And here's what I mean by that. If you were to look at my life, if I was to look at your life, and you followed us around for a month, and you contemplated the heart of Jesus as revealed, as, as talked about in the Gospels, the historical Jesus, and you studied our culture, would you walk away going, wow, <laughs> they really, really reflect the teachings and the life 
of that Jewish rabbi from the first century? Or would they say, no, you're pretty much part and parcel like the American dream? So when I say we worship at the altar of empire, that's what I mean. Our assumptions, our beliefs, our worldviews, they're shaped, almost indelibly shaped by our culture. Now again, I assume some of us will shake our heads and be like, well, not me. And by the way, if that's you right now, I have some bad news for you, and it's this. You are self-deceived. I'm sorry to tell you that. None of us are getting out of this unscathed. And I'm not saying that to beat you up or anyone up or make us feel bad, but simply to point out the vision of the American empire with all of its violence and triumphalism is in the air we breathe. It's in the water we drink. It's in the food we consume. It's in the media that we listen to and watch. It's in the news that that we're always taking in. We can't escape it. And I say this because there are people, whether progressive or conservative, that have offered, uh, um, there are very few people, whether progressive or conservative, that have offered a compelling vision for the road ahead. And it's just like, man, it sounds like all we're doing is parroting talking points from our side. Talking points tinged to one degree or another with the ideas of empire. We are all in it. And the best we can do is resist with everything we have every single day to resist, to say no to what is normal and what is embraced, to pursue peace and shalom. And it must begin with us. And the most common thing I see, not just in this conversation, but in almost everything, is the assumption that the problems are always outside of us. This is is like the most childish thinking. I mean, think about a, a fight when you were little on the playground. I don't know if there was one, There was a lot when I was on the playground, and I'll tell you what, I was involved in a lot of them. But like, if you think about a second grader who gets into a fight when they're playing, I don't know, kickball, like when when a teacher comes over, like little Timmy doesn't say, "Well, what happened is I was hogging the ball, and Peter here, well, he wanted a chance, and because I chose to be selfish, Peter got upset." That, that has never happened in the history of the universe. We all know what it is. The teacher comes over, and they begin pointing at one another, right? Timmy says it's Peter's fault, and Peter says it's Timmy's fault. And the trick of the adult is to figure out who's done what and then help the children begin to own the things that they did that contributed to the conflict. But this is not what we do. I mean, how many of us are listening right now thinking about all the places that we see violence and hate in our world or with that group and still haven't really hit the pause button in our own flow of thought so that we can pay attention to what's happening within us. I mean, we are like on autopilot when something happens to look outside and figure out where the problem is out there. But what if we said, like, where do I harbor hate? In what ways do I spread division rather than shalom? How has my heart been shriveled by the sickness of violence? You see, it has to begin with us. It has to begin with us recognizing we need healing as much as everyone else. 
And it's possible one of the reasons we can't seem to move forward as a country these days is because there are very few who've taken the real serious time to look within our hearts as individuals to examine, to confess, and to repent. And by the way, I'll say this again. I'm going to have a bunch of caveats, I feel like. If you're sitting here driving or listening or jogging going, yeah, man, this is... I've done that. I've confessed and I've repented. And you're feeling really good about yourself because you've done that. By the way, the reason I know to point this out is because I do this. If you're like really excited that you've been able to do this, then you probably need to revisit it because confession and repentance often leads toward humility, not a sense of, oh yeah, I've done something. Like, we don't do this. What do we do? We, we run around telling the world what's wrong with this person or that group. No, take the plank out of your own eye. This is what Jesus said. Do that first. Then we can talk about other things. Then we can be the change we want to see in this world of ours, as Gandhi supposedly said. Because when we bring light and love and hope and peace and healing to broken places, the violent places within, then we are able to address the broken and violent places in our world from a place of light and love and hope and peace and healing. It will happen through us as it happens in us. And we will find that no longer will we arrogantly cast blame at the feet of others, but when we see and understand the forgiveness and compassion offered to us, we will then be able to offer forgiveness and compassion in the same way to others as well. This is a crucial, a vital first step, and it cannot be missed. Because if it is, we will in time become the very thing we hate, the very thing we criticize. And an example of this is the uh, many, many white Christians who grew up in white evangelical environments who now spend all sorts of time and energy criticizing and lambasting uh, white evangelicals. As though the problem is all right there. And what's interesting is the more fervent the criticism, the more they sound like the very fundamentalists that they're criticizing. It's very possible when you meet somebody who grew up in the evangelical world and hates evangelicals, is that there's something within that they've not addressed, some sort of wound that they've not tended some sort of anger and bitterness that they're living out of that's producing this. But what they haven't done is they haven't found that healing yet. It's like we have all these people walking around with a two-by-four sticking out of their eye. It, we, we, need, we need to begin there. And I think we also, by the way, we need to confess our willingness to tolerate the hate and violence in our country. I mean, sure, we'll, we'll you know, cry out when there's a mass shooting, but 99% of our lives are unaffected. So we just keep going business as usual. What if we confessed our complicity in this? What if we confessed that when push comes to shove, we actually may not care as much as we claim to? Maybe it's time for us to own that, to name that, to name that as true, which is what confession means. Now, I understand that some of us may be feeling like, well, what can we do? And it can feel paralyzing because nothing seems to change. Or we may feel overwhelmed by the work that lay ahead, so it can feel easier to ignore it. Or it can be 
like revealed is so deeply complex that we don't know where to start. Yes, I understand all those things. However, do they exonerate us from inaction? Like, does that make our tolerance of this okay? No, the answer is, of course not. And the first step is saying so. And that, by the way, can lead us to freedom. And, and then, beyond the confession, uh, there's the repentance side of things. Now, I know the word repent and repentance, that's a, that's a big, loaded word right there. And for many, it can feel super religious. But here's the thing. It's actually not religious, at least not in its origins. The word repent... Uh, carries the idea of changing your mind or turning around, and it really was first a political word. And it meant cease giving your allegiance to this leader or this country and repent by giving your allegiance to this leader in this country. And it was often a proposition that was offered to soldiers who were losing in a battle. And we see an example of this in the ancient historian Josephus, where he says, listen, All will be forgiven. In other words, your fighting against Rome will be forgiven if you repent and follow me. These are his words. Repent, turn, and follow me in worshiping Caesar, in in being loyal to Rome. So this was the idea of the word, to shift allegiances, to think differently, to see the world in a new way. And I wonder, like, what would a new way of thinking or living look like? Well, one thing is... Maybe we need to put away our weapons. And I don't just mean guns. I mean anything that is an extension of your body that can be used to harm others, which includes phones and keyboards, which includes your words. It means no longer seeking to hurt or harm or denigrate, but to love, embrace, and support. It is giving up our proclivity toward conflict. It means eschewing eschewing division and discord, and as much as we are able to, seeking peace and wholeness and repairing what has long been broken. Now, of course, words may seem like a very small thing, but we must remember that when words fail, and they can only take us so far, they will give way to actions. This is why every fight at a bar begins the same way. Somebody bumps into someone else, someone does something, whatever it is, and it begins with words. Hey, man, watch out. You can tell, <laughs> you can tell I've been in a lot of bar fights. Hey, man, watch out. Filled with rage right there. But what is it? Hey, watch out. And then it's, you talking to me? Yeah, I'm talking to you. And then what does it do? It escalates, and now you get into the profanities, and it keeps going, and then the people get closer together, and eventually a punch is thrown. Because at some point... Words lose their power, and you have to go beyond the words because they can only take us so far. And we live in a culture, by the way, with violence woven into the fabric of a story, and we, we've learned to use words as wrecking balls. And quite honestly, I don't know that we should be surprised when troubled people see physical violence as a reasonable next step. And by the way, the more this keeps happening, the more it will be seen as a viable option by people. While we may not want to see a broad chasm, by the way, between the way that we use our words and the violent acts that we continue to see, keep in mind Jesus brought these two things very close together. In his teaching in the Gospel of Matthew, he said, if you call your brother or your sister a fool, it's as though you've killed them. That's my paraphrase. Words in Jesus' economy are akin to physical violence. 
So let's put those weapons away and choose to use our words wisely. Speaking of words, maybe one way we can use them wisely is, like, what if we use them uh, to condemn violence in all of its manifestations, in all places, at all times? And, and if we did this equally, not just when it was the other side who did something we deemed wrong. Because if we are silent in the face of continued violence, then we are, in fact, complicit if we are not actively working to right wrongs, to make the crooked ways straight, then there is a level of complicity. I mean, if we are those who choose to remain silent on what plagues our country, then we should be honest and admit that our faith is simply a self-serving, self-help program designed to make us feel better. Keep in mind, Jesus lived in times that were soaked in violence and weapons and conflict. He lived in the province of Rome that had long been the home of his people, the Jewish people. And now his home was occupied by the Romans who killed for domination and pleasure. Crucifixion in Jesus' day was commonplace. Violence, it seemed, was like everywhere. It was all around. Even among the religiously observant, there were those who advocated violence. Death by stoning for those who broke certain rules. And in the midst of all this, Jesus told those who lived in, in this violent culture, he, he was always telling them to cease being violent, even when it was his own people. I mean, sure, when Peter was people bent on execution, Jesus said, drop your stones. But he also told his zealous followers, put away your sword. He invited his followers to resist the temptation to treat anyone as an enemy, even going so far as to say, pray for those who persecute you. Now, in our vision and idea, like, well, that just makes Jesus a pushover. He wasn't a pushover. When violence reared its ugly head in his presence, he never shied away from speaking against it. And when violence was done to him, he forgave those who perpetuated it. Jesus didn't just say, well, bless those who persecute you and love your enemies. Jesus practiced it. And so I wonder, what if we, in our repentance... What if we took our allegiance from the empire and pointed it toward the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus called it? Would we not then, in imitation of Jesus, not only pray for and bless our enemies, but also be those who gives our lives and words and hands to heal wounds? Would we not use our voices to speak against, in its myriad forms, all violence, while at the same time being quick to pronounce forgiveness and shalom? Will we be those who commit to communicating the message of love and grace and mercy and peace again and again and again, even in the moments it feels wildly unpopular in our culture or our homes or schools or with our particular brand of politics? But will we proclaim this good news so that violence might lose its grip on us, even if just by a little? I wonder in our repentance, what would happen if we learned to see people like really see people as the image bearers they are. To see them with the love of the divine, the life of God that breathes them. I'm thinking of Thomas Merton, who spoke about a moment in his life that forever changed him. These are the words that he wrote. In Louisville, at the corner of Fourth and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I theirs, 
that we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world. This sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. I had the immense joy of being a man, a member of the race in which God himself became incarnate. As if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me, now that I realize what we all are. And if only everybody could realize this. But it cannot be explained. There's no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts, where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach, the core of their reality, the person that each one is in God's eyes. If only they could all see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time. There would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. But this cannot be seen, only believed and understood by a peculiar gift. Mm. Man, what if that's what repentance looked like? A new stance, a new posture, a new way of seeing a new way of believing. See, from this place, maybe, maybe then we can act. And and you may wonder like, oh, good, act. Okay, now, what about the practical things? Which, by the way, that's a great question, and it deserves time and attention. But here's what I'm coming to believe more and more. We naturally want to know what we can do, and I think that comes from a good place. I really do. And, And we really want to know what we can do, especially in moments like this. And by the way, There's a lot of places that you can go uh, online and learn what you can do in very practical ways. But what I've often seen and what I've often experienced is this. People are often asking me, because of the work I do, what are the practical things I can do? And when practical things are offered, most people who are asking will do them. And, And they'll do them, but only often for a very short time, because eventually... Whatever fire was in their belly, it just begins to fade. And it will often fade because little within has grown or been reshaped. And so in the end, we just don't have the strength or the stamina to go the distance. And I say that because maybe what is needed for us is to spend time within looking at how we've contributed, what needs to be confessed, what repentance needs to take place. And we need to do this together so that we might become those who have the power alongside one another to take more steps, which include practical steps, but to take more steps and to do so for a longer period of time because something needs to happen. Things need to change, and I think everybody can agree on that. Quoting Dr. King once again, these are the words he preached the night before his life was ended by a bullet. He said, The nation is sick. Trouble is in the land. Confusion all around. That's a strange statement. But I know somehow that only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. And I see God working in this period in a way that men in some strange way are responding. Something is happening in our world. 
The masses of people are rising up. We have been forced to a point where we're going to have to grapple with the problems that we have been trying to grapple with, or that men have been trying to grapple with through history. My hope is that it might be said of us that it was dark enough and that we had the eyes to see the stars. May it be said of us that we are responding, that we are rising up, that we have been forced to a point where we have to grapple with the problems that plague our land and that we have agreed to do this together. I heard a proverb once that said, don't ask God to feed the hungry family down the street when you have a cupboard full of food. These words came to mind when I hear reports of another mass shooting. Like, of course, prayer is important. But I often wonder, like when we ask God, when will you do something about this? That God might just respond and say, well, when will you do something about this? And we, you and me, we can do something about this. And it can begin within each of us. We can cease adding to the violence in word and deed. We can sow seeds of love. Thoughtfulness and peace can exist in all conversations we have. We can learn of the dignity that all human beings possess and dignify them with respect, honoring others as ourselves, even in the midst of disagreement. We can repent on behalf of the violence our nation has perpetuated over the centuries, a nation that has long claimed to be a Christian nation, but in no way resembles Jesus. We can pursue justice for those who have long been oppressed by systems of racism and marginalization in our country, and we can live as peacemakers, seeking the wholeness, goodness, love, beauty, and light in our homes, our schools, our workplaces, our houses of worship, and in every place our feet take us. We must be led to compassion and mercy and kindness, befriending the lonely and the forgotten, the left out and the bullied, and speak out for those who've been relegated to the margins by our culture. And as we do all of this, may we remember Jesus' words that he said, you will do greater things than me. May we believe those words to be true. And may we not just long for, but may we all work together toward a time when we will see people beating their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And may we work toward the day when nation will not take up sword against nation and nor will they train for war anymore and that we might see everyone sitting under their own vine and their own fig tree. And may we do that work within us so that the work we're doing in the world is a natural outflow through us so that we may never tire in that work and together see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And with that, we come to the end of today's episode. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks for another episode of the Changing Faith Podcast. Thank you so much for joining with us today. But until our next time together, as always, much love and peace be with you.